We're going to take our Bibles, we're going to turn in them to the 41st chapter of the um, book of Isaiah. You can probably peel me back just a fuzz, uh, <clears throat> that'll be fine. Yes, sir. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 29 in a message that I have entitled, What God Will Do. Y'all there? All right, let's stand. Let's, we're going to get in this habit of standing up. Y'all awake after that big blast of sound? Well, that was a, star, a little unstartling, wasn't it? It's like, wow, we're awake. Let's turn, turn, I say turn, take our hearts, turn our hearts to the Lord and pray. Father, we just thank you so much for gathering us here today. And Lord, we, we do want to be alert and awake to what you would say to us today. And so give us ears to hear you. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to meet with us and minister to us right where we're at. And so to that end, we say, have your way. And when we talk about, Lord, touching hearts and changing lives, uh, Lord, we all kind of individually and collectively raise our hand. We just, we, we want to be first in line for that touch, for that change, uh, God, that you would uh, work in us. And so speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' holy name, we all say, amen. amen. Have a seat there. <clears throat> Well, we left off last week on a wonderful litany of promises from God. We were uh, isolating the horrible atrocity, the exact nature, if you will, a sinful nature of fear and anxiety. Though I think that if we were to be transparent with one another, uh, those are things, fear, anxiety, worry, those are the kinds of things that we all struggle with from time to time and in various and sundry situations. But the plain command of the word of God is fear not. Don't be afraid. However, God doesn't simply chide us as though we're just being big babies. He doesn't come along and say, hey, suck it up, buttercup. You know, quit being such a scaredy cat. I've never seen the like of such wimpy and whiny cowards. That's not the way God is, as if we have some intrinsic value in and of ourselves that would enable us to walk in consistent boldness in the face of every uncertainty and all the anxiety that life tries to heap upon us. He doesn't ask you to dig deep and to stand tall. There's a reason why God commands us not to fear not to freak out in the day of adversity. And it is this, look back, if you will, with me at verse 10. God says, I am with you. I am your God and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, look, I understand you don't have it in you, but I have it in me and I'm with you. Can you say praise God to that? Fear is such an immobilizing attack of the enemy. Recall with me, if you will, in your mind's eye, 1 Samuel 17, and there they are, the Philistine, Philistines having gathered their army together for battle. And Saul and his men, the men of Israel, drawing up in battle array against the Philistines. And here are the Philistines on one side on a hill, and here are the men of Israel on another side on another hill, and the valley is there in between them. And things were ready to ignite. The men of Israel were ready to set it off until out of the thick mob of the Philistine soldiers, this literal giant of a man emerged, and Goliath was his name, nine and a half feet tall, 
coated with armor on his legs and on his head. He had chain mail on his torso, a massive sword on his side, a huge javelin in his hand, and a shield bearer going before him. And every morning and every night he would present himself. He would mock the men of Israel. He would throw down the gauntlet saying, pick your best fighter and we'll go mano a mano, one-on-one, you against me, winner take all. If you win, we'll serve you. And if I win, you serve us. But he would taunt them. I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man to fight. And they knew that it meant a fight unto the death. And guys, this went on every day for more than a month. And it absolutely shook them to the core. What was happening? Fear was paralyzing them. It was immobilizing them. It was destabilizing them. It was stopping the advance of God's people and God's plan. So what happened? Well, you'll have to write it down so you can read it later. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can look it up on your own. But suffice it to say that ultimately it turned out much as verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 41 says it would, once one person emerged who would trust the Lord. Look at verse 11. Behold, all those who are against you uh, or who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced, and they shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish, and you shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. Verse 13, for I, the Lord, your God will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Can I just say that God knows how to handle our enemies? He knows how to make our adversaries, be they physical or be they spiritual, ashamed and disgraced, and he promises to be with us, to give strength to us. He says, I will help you. I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. What a precious promise. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to draw your attention to the order here. There's a reason you understand that when you cross a road with a small child, There's a reason that you take them by the hand and you don't trust them to grab a hold and hang on to your hand. It's because, you know, if it's up to them, they might be startled into letting go. They might slip. They might stumble. They might grow weary and let go. But if you're holding their hand, hey, listen, they're secure. You aren't ever going to let go in a potentially hazardous environment. And if it's necessary, you'll pick that child up and you'll carry them through. Well, in like manner, God doesn't trust us, and rightfully so, to hold his hand. We might get startled. We might get scared. We might slip. We might stumble. He says, I'll hold your right hand, and he will never let go. And if he needs to, and how many of you would say honestly and transparently, yes, he has for me, he will pick you up and carry you through that situation. 
I tell you what, look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff, and you shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel." Family, what do we see here if it's not the declaration and transformation of God over and in the lives of his own? This is who you are apart from me, and this is what you become when I do a work of transformation in your life. But once again, notice, fear not. This is the third time in four verses that God has uttered those words. And can I just tell you that God is not into repeating himself for the proverbial sake of hearing his head rattle. I'm telling you, if he says it, it's because we need to hear it. And I'm just wondering who this word is for this morning. Fear not. You are in the valley of despair. You can't seem to find hope on the horizon. Maybe you're worried about all the things that are happening in the world today, and the Lord says to you, fear not. Now, he's sober, isn't he? To who you are, to who I am, apart from him. God pulls no punches. And so I'm just going to stand boldly on the truth of the word of God today. In and of yourself, you are a worm. (laughs) And I am too. I love the candid nature of God's word. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to have an elevated opinion of who we are? But God likes to keep it real, as we say. And in the New Testament vernacular, Paul put it this way. He said, for I say, through the grace, notice, the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And God just doesn't have a problem helping us think soberly. We could bounce back to the words of David. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Listen, if someone ever calls you a a dirt bag, They speak the words of truth and reason. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. For dust you are, and to the dust you shall return. Listen, we're all just a bunch of dirt balls. God knows who you are. He knows who I am. But he loves you. And he wants to take you and transform you in a radical and awesome way. You and me, we are clay pots, earthen vessels. And most of us are crack pots at that. Not much intrinsic value. 
And this is why people are without hope being without God in the world. Because it's Jesus Christ who adds value, brings meaning, healing, hope, and adds purpose to our lives. We have this treasure, the Bible says, the person of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel in earthen vessels. Verse 14 reminds me of the words of Jesus when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Notice, for without me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. In and of ourselves, we really have nothing to offer. I mean, in the eternal scheme of things, we bring nothing to the table. But that's okay. Fear not. I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He says, I'm going to do a brand new work of transformation in your life. And I will empower you, and I will equip you, and I will embolden you, and I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth, and you will thresh the mountains and beat them small. In other words, no obstacle too big, nothing insurmountable. You will make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them and you shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. God takes you, man. Come on, somebody say amen. God takes you and transforms you from a worm into an immovable, unstoppable warrior that you might rejoice and glory in the Holy One of Israel. I tell you what, through the strength of the Lord in their lives, nothing, no matter how overwhelming it might seem, would be able to stand against them. Quick question, who but the living God can do such a work in His people's lives? Again, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But how might we paraphrase verses 15 and 16 in the New Testament vernacular? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have no reason to rejoice in my great work. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm incapable of a great work. I mean... Guys, and this isn't saying that apart from Jesus, people can't build skyscrapers or figure out quantum physics or do neat things as it pertains to the eyes of the world. He's speaking of an eternal value. Uh, Spiritually, eternally speaking, apart from God's work in my life, I am incapable, you see. If there's something great eternally, spiritually, that comes from me, it's only because of His work in and through me. And so too with you. And so let's rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. You see, now look at verse 17. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. 
the God, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the uh, oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord, underline that, has done this and the Holy One of Israel has, notice, created it. Can I just tell you that God has riches, resources, and options of which we know nothing about. If verses 10 through 16 reflect God's protection, then surely verses 17 through 20 reflect God's provision. And I just want you to know that in verse 17, God tethers his provision to his people's prayers. Did you Notice that the poor and needy made known their plight before God. It's clearly implied because God says, I, the Lord will hear them. If he's hearing them, that means they're crying out to him. I love Jeremiah chapter 33 in verse three. It's there that the Lord says, call to me and I will answer you. And show you great and mighty things which you do not know. But can I once again draw your attention to the order of events here in this passage? If we don't call to him, then he's not going to answer us. God wants to provide for you. He has hidden resources. He's just waiting to reveal to you through which he might bless your life. Rivers in desolate heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys, pools of water in the wilderness. God likes to do things in our lives in such a way so that in the end, the only explanation is to God be the glory, great things he has done. Or as we read in verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. But there's a bit of a prerequisite involved here, and I'm just going to point it out to you so you pick up on it. If we're to see God do great, mighty things, provide in wonderful, miraculous ways, we need to be thirsty. If we don't recognize our poverty, and this is where you write down so you can begin to read later Matthew chapter 5, then we may never see God's miraculous provision. If we don't think we have a real need for God to work in our lives, can I just tell you, he probably won't. If you're satisfied with the way your life is right now, then you probably won't see God do much more in it. On the other side of the scale, if you are thirsty, man, to see God move, you're unsatisfied 
with where you're at. You long to be more like Jesus. You're thirsting to be used in greater ways by Jesus. You aren't satisfied until your life is a beacon for the glory of Jesus. Come on, somebody. God is going to open some rivers in the desolate heights of your life. Jesus said that like this. He said, if anyone thirsts, there's the prerequisite. There's the conditional clause. You've got to thirst. Let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And when people pick up on the change in your life, they will consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. You see that? The Holy One of Israel created it. Translation, your fruitfulness gives glory and points people to Jesus Christ. R write it down. Look it up later. John chapter 15 and verse 8. Let's look at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Family, let's remind ourselves before we press much further into the passage that when the curtain, if you remember right, when the curtain was drawn back on chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah, we found ourselves in a bit of a courtroom kind of drama, and God himself was commanding the court. And he spoke to pagan, idolatrous nations uh, of the earth, and he compared them to, or contrasted them and compared them to his chosen nation, Israel. Now he turns his attention back to the idolaters and the idols of the world. God says to the one who hasn't sought him, to the one who does not serve him, present your case. Bring forth your strong reasons. That is, explain yourself. Bring forward, right? He's giving them ample opportunity to share with him. He says, bring forth your justifiable cause for not following me or giving your allegiance instead to these idols or some other thing, you see. He says, go ahead, explain it. Bring forth your strong reasons, your, your just cause. For us today, though it may not be an idol in the sense of this little, you know, pewter or ceramic trinket, some image of gold or silver, the same question would be presented with regard to anything else that we've allowed to take priority in our lives over the living God. Justify yourself. Defend your position. You see, what is your valid reason your rationale for not seeking after, for not serving the Lord. Please justify it for me, he says. Can your idol or that which you pursue, that which you serve, that which you spend your time seeking after, explain the origin of the universe? I mean, can it declare former things or things yet to come? Do tell, bring it out, present your case, let's hear it. Look at verse 22. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come 
hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yeah, he says, do good or evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. Well, I trust that you see that we could really spend some time here. But we'll kind of keep it concise. God is essentially saying, let your idols, or whatever it is that you've put your hope in, that which you look to, that which you seek after, those things that you pursue, let them share with us some things of old. Yeah, that's exactly what he, he means. It's open for a little speculation. He could be saying, you know, let your God, whatever it may be, who it may be, uh, tell us how it all began. What brought the universe into being? He could be saying, hey, let your gods bring forth some evidence of things that they've spoken in the past that have been plainly fulfilled. Or even, look, just give us a history lesson. Share some insight on times past and where we've been and from where we've come. Guys, man really has no idea in and of himself of any of these things. Yeah, I mean, we have some history books to help us understand some isolated events or perhaps a few cultural connotations and details. But really, I mean, in the scope of human history, our knowledge of the past is extremely limited. As for our beginnings, like how did it all just begin? Man is, apart from God, limited to ludicrous theories. I mean, they're theories. They're I don't really knows. But I think sometime at some point out of nothing, something and not only it just exploded in such a way as to spin the, the entire universe, the planetary galaxies and all just out into somewhere. And somewhere along the way, a planet kind of developed that was perfect. And it's, you know, the ability to, and then out of nothing on the planet, something kind of like a single cell amoeba or something. And, and it grew a little wart that became an eye. And it, I mean, you know, yada, yada, yada. And there we are. You know, let's dress it up in some scientific sounding rhetoric. And uh, I think we can sell it. Guys, our knowledge, so that's our knowledge of the past, apart from God. Our knowledge of the future, absolutely goose egg. I mean, zero. Yet the Bible declares known to God from eternity are all his works. And this is one of the ways that God reveals the truth of who he is to mankind by what the Bible, the King James Version anyway, refers to as the more sure word of prophecy. The New King James calls it the uh, prophetic word confirmed. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 specifically. But God not only explains the origin of all created things historically, he shares what's yet to come prophetically. 
Guys, I'm going to use approximates here, but there are approximately, okay, don't hold me to the letter, but there are approximately 2,000 prophecies in your Bible. Nearly 30% of Scripture is composed of prophecy. Now, the Bible is the only book on the planet that dares to stake its veracity, its reliability, its legitimacy, the fact that it is trustworthy on its ability to tell you things yet to come. And should it ever miss, you can dismiss the whole thing. That being said, of the 2,000-ish prophecies that the Bible declares, how many do you think have failed? Not one. I mean, over around 75%, some 1,500, again, ish, have already been fulfilled. Therefore, we have no reason to believe that the remaining 25% will fail either including things like the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, things that are going to take place during that time period, the revealing of the Antichrist, the revival of the nation of Israel, the evangelizing of the world, the mark of the beast, the return in 1,000-year reign of Christ. I mean, you get the idea. You can trust the Word of God. And this is why Peter said, look, when you're reading through that section of Scripture later in, in 2 Peter, you'll, you'll read where he says, Look, we did not follow cunningly devised fables or these carefully crafted stories when we made known to you the coming and the glory, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw him transfigured before us on the holy mount. We heard, as it were, with our own ears, the voice of God from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says, but even beyond my eyewitness account, we have the more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light Shining in a dark place. It's, it's shining. It's, it's, it's lighting up. It's pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. But here's God castigating, criticizing these idols. Come on. Tell us something. Anything. I mean, something from the past. Something yet to come. Give us something. Or how about this? God says, do something. I mean anything. I don't care if it's good or evil, God says. He says, just do something. Leave us jaw dropped. Leave us dismayed and wowed, awestruck. But they do nothing. He says, you are nothing. Your work is nothing. The accusation based on evidence. And he says, anyone who chooses you is an abomination. The idea here is this, to choose to align yourself with any other thing or any other one outside of the Lord is an abomination or it is wicked, it is detestable in the sight of God. Now look at verse 25. I have 
I, notice he says, have raised one up from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as through mortar, as the potter treads clay. Now, I told you in the beginning of this chapter, this was last week, that later on in the chapter, we're here now, that God most definitely prophesies of the coming of Cyrus. Remember that Persian king who would release the Jews from Babylonian captivity and allow them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and all. Remember, we spoke of things that were former and things that were latter. We talked about Abraham and Cyrus and the debate revolving around some of those things in this chapter. But God is saying here, look, I've asked you for some insight, some information. You can't give me anything. He says, let me tell you something that's going to take place. It's not the idols or any prophet of an idol who could tell of anything that was to happen. It's God who does these things. The only thing that an idol can create is a lot of confusion. And that's the end of every ungodly philosophy. Notice verse 26. He says, who has declared from the beginning that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. Underline that. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and, what's the word? Confusion. Interesting. The Bible says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. But in contrast, for where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. And of course, James tells us that those things are rooted in demonic activity. Okay. Chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah is the great, let's call it I will chapter of the Bible. Over and over and over again, God says, I will, I will, I will. And I'd encourage you, let's be your homework assignment for later. Go back through and take note, mark them. He says things like, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will make you into a new threshing sledge. Kind of hard to say, threshing sledge with sharp teeth. I will open rivers in desolate heights. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree. I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. These are things that God says he will do. This is the I will chapter of God. Now in contrast, Isaiah 14. Now there's nothing particularly inspired about you know, chapter and chapter as far as the man-made insertions. But it's interesting. Isaiah 41 would be the I will chapter of God. Reverse the numbers. 14. 
being the I will chapter of Satan. Do you remember his I wills? Uh, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. By the way, we're getting ready to close Abby here. So if you want I want you, do you notice any difference in intent or tone in those I wills? The I will statements of Satan are all rooted in self-centeredness and pride. The I will statements of God are all for the benefit and blessing of his people. Now, how many of Satan's I will statements? Yeah, come on up. That's when I called you and said, Abby, we're ready to close. Just, just let you know, it's all good. That gives these people a moment of like a, a renewing refresh, like, whoo, he's almost done. <laughs> but the statements, again, the I will statements of Satan are all selfish. The I will statements of God are all selfless. They're for the benefit, the blessing of his people. Now, how many of Satan's I will statements have or will come to pass? Zero. Not one of them. But you can count on the fact that each and every one of God's I will statements are going to be fulfilled. Every one of them. He calls the end from the beginning, speaks of things that have yet to take place as though they're already done. And this is the God that you serve. And he loves you and has given himself for you in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's call upon him now. Give him praise and thanksgiving for so great a salvation. Amen. Lord, we humble our hearts before you now. And we call upon you. God, we're so thirsty to be used by you, to bring glory to you, to be a beacon of light that points people, Lord, to you. And we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy which endures forever. We're asking you to open rivers in the desolate heights of our lives. And we thank you for loving us, for saving us, for giving your only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sin. And so, Lord, may we serve you and honor you and glorify you forever. Lord, that's the longing of our heart. Not only that we would know you, but that we would glorify you forever. We thank you for your grace.